Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. Last week we began the story of Jonah. Today we are going to continue on with our walk through the book of Jonah. If you need to use the table of contents to find that's no problem at all. Right after the book of Obadiah. So when you got to Obadiah, one more to go. There we go. You know, one of the things that we've been doing recently is we've been having a time of pastoral prayer during our services. And the time of pastoral prayer is really for the pastor to lead congregation in prayer. The Bible says that the house of the Lord should be a house of prayer. But also it's a time of instruction, of learning how it is that we are to pray, teaching one another about how we are to be in prayer together. What I want to do today is I actually want to use a, a book that's been helpful for me in my own prayer life to guide our time of prayer today. Now, I don't often read prayers in service, but sometimes I think it's helpful to read the prayers of others to instruct us and help us to give voice to what it is that our souls are experiencing. The, the book that I want to use today is, I want to commend it to you. I want to encourage you to, to purchase it if you haven't gotten a copy of it already. It's called The Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision. This particular book is a collection of Puritan prayers, mostly updated in, in modern language, but this particular collection of Puritan prayers has meant a lot to me in the 15 or 20 years since I have owned this particular book. But the prayer that I want to let guide our time of prayer today is from this book. It's called Peril, and it really relates to Jonah chapter 2. So let's go ahead and bow in prayer together. Sovereign commander of the universe. We're sadly harassed by doubts, fears, unbelief, and a felt spiritual darkness. Our hearts are full of evil surmisings and disquietude, and we cannot act faith at all. Our heavenly pilot has seemingly disappeared and we've lost our hold on the rock of ages. We sink in deep mire beneath storms and waves and horror and distress unutterable. Help us, Lord, to throw ourselves absolutely and wholly on you for better, for worse, with comfort, without comfort and with the hope that we can find only in Christ Jesus. Give us peace of soul, confidence, enlargement of mind, morning joy that comes after night heaviness. Water our souls richly with divine blessings. Grant that maybe we may welcome thy humbling in private so that we might enjoy thee in public. Give us a mountaintop as high as the valley is low. Your grace can melt the worst sinner. And we are as vile as he. Yet you have made us a monument of, monument of mercy, a trophy of redeeming power in our distress. Let us not forget this. 
all-wise God. Your never-failing providence orders every event, sweetens every fear, reveals every evil's presence lurking in seeming good, brings real good out of seeming evil, makes unsatisfactory what we set our hearts on beside you to show us what short-sighted creatures we are and to teach us to live by faith upon your blessed self. Out of our sorrow and night, give us the name Naphtali, meaning satisfied with favor. Help us to love you as your children and to walk worthy of our heavenly heritage. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name as we ask you to continue to speak to us today. Amen. The book of Jonah is real news. It's not very much of a news story if a man eats a fish alive. (laughs) But it's a huge story when a fish eats a man alive. (laughs) And that's what we find here in the book of Jonah. In the book of Jonah chapter 1, God speaks to Jonah and he says, Get up and go to that great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its evil has reached to high heaven. And Jonah knows the reputation of these Ninevites, these people of Nineveh that God wants Jonah to go preach to. He knows all about them, that these are the ancient terrorists of that particular day. They are ruthless, they are merciless, they are murderers. And he knows the deal. He knows that if he preaches judgment to them, telling them the, what the one true and living God thinks about them and their rebellion and their idolatry, that it is just possible that they would hear the preaching of the prophet, they would turn away from their sins, call upon God, repent, and God would forgive them and relent from the disaster that he is going to send upon Nineveh. And so Jonah does exactly what he thinks he ought to do. He brings God into his own courtroom, puts the gavel in his own hands, and slams the gavel on the desk of his own opinion about what God is doing and he says in his own judgment God you're wrong you're wrong about this and I'm going to do my own thing have you ever done that in your life have you ever thought God was leading you in a direction or wonder why things were happening the way they were or felt God leading you in a particular area and yet you brought God into your own personal courtroom and said, God, you are wrong. And so Jonah did exactly the opposite what he thought God was telling him to do, what he had heard audibly God telling him to do. Rather than go east towards Nineveh, he goes west. Rather than go up, he goes down, 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 all the way down to Joppa, down into the boat, down into the deepest parts of the boat, down into a deep sleep. He is trying to get as far away from God as he possibly can. And there's some of you who are in that same situation right now that God has told you to do something. God is calling you. God is speaking to you. And you want to get away from him as far as you possibly can. You are a modern day prodigal, even as Jonah was the prodigal of the Old Testament. He's running from God. 
They begin to journey across the Mediterranean Sea, and God sends a huge storm upon the sea in order to bring back his prophet, in order to bring back this wayward soul. Sometimes storms are evidence of God's grace to not let us say no to him forever. In fact, sometimes even in the storms of life, God is reeling us in, drawing us back to himself. Even though it's difficult, even though the sailors were rowing with as much might as they could muster, in the midst of that trial, in the midst of that storm, God was working to bring back his prodigal prophet, his son who is on the run, his child who is running. It was all hands on deck. Everybody, y'all start praying to your own gods. Perhaps we might hit on someone. Everybody was praying on deck of that ship, except Jonah. Jonah was down in the belly of that ship sound asleep everybody praying except the sleepy prophet and then the captain of the ship goes down into the deepest reaches of the ship shakes Jonah awake and says to him the exact same words that he'd already heard from God Jonah opens his eyes and he sees the ship captain say to him get up and go exactly the words in Hebrew that God had already told him. He must be wondering, how did you know? And he says, so he gets up and he goes onto the deck of the ship and he joins this multi-faith prayer service. And then at that moment, the sailors decide, let's draw straws to see who it is that is causing this calamity. God is sovereign over all things. He's even, the, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that he causes the dice to land. And in this particular moment, guess whose straw comes up? Out of all of the sailors and the ship captain and everybody else on board, it is Jonah who is selected. You're the one running from God. And Jonah says to them, he writes, they ask him, who are you? And rather than answer that question, identifying himself in terms of his relationship with God, he finds other realities that he places as a central part of his identity, just like so many people are doing today, trying to define themselves in all kinds of ways, rather than letting God and their relationship with God be at the core of who they are in their identity and all other identities flowing out of that central identity of your relationship with God. That's Jonah's problem. Jonah says, I'm a Hebrew. He says, I do worship the one true and living God. Interesting how you worship him in, with Pastor Pillow and Brother Blanket and Sister Sheets over at Bedside Baptist <laughs> down in the belly of the ship. But there he is. He says, the only way for you to survive is to throw me over the side, place me in Yahweh's hands, kick me out, throw me overboard. They do. They do throw him over the side of the ship. And as Jonah is falling into the water, the sailors cry out, God, forgive us for what we've done. God forgives them and they cry out to the Lord. These pagan sailors are led to Christ by this running prophet and then they cry out to God and say, we're gonna sacrifice to the Lord. Jonah is falling down, down, down into the water. Chapter one, verse 17 says this, the Lord appointed a great fish at that moment to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights last week we we, we came up with three illustrate or three points from that particular passage from chapter one or, or, or three points from chapter one and they are as follows number one is this trust in the character of the sovereign all-knowing all-present all-powerful and loving God trust in God he's in control Number two principle from chapter one is this, trust God's loving pursuit in the middle of the storm. 
Trust that when God runs after you, bringing you back to himself, trust in him that he is good when he pursues his prodigal kids. Finally, number three, find your core identity in your relationship with God. Don't believe a world that is trying to get you to find your identity in all kinds of other things and other areas. Your core identity is always found in your relationship with God and the only thing that you can give you meaning that will last and will stand the test of time. This brings us to chapter 2. What I want to talk to you about today is simply this. How do you learn to praise in dark places? How do you learn to praise the Lord in dark places? Let's pick it up in chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, reading through the end of the chapter, verse 10. Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol, and you heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet, I will look once more towards your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. The seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray that you would speak to us from this passage about how we can learn to praise you, even in dark places of life. Lord, I know that in this room right now there are those who are facing dark situations. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of that there would come praise, worship of our God, for you are the saving, delivering God. Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's three principles from chapter 2 that I want you to see from this text. Number one is this. How do you learn to praise in dark places? Number one, patiently trust the miracle-working God. Patiently trust the miracle-working God. Here we find a passage of Scripture that some people find problematic. Then we come to this text and we see what seems to be the impossible. How can we in 2021 possibly believe that somebody was swallowed by a big fish and survived for three days? And there's a lot of interesting ways that people try to get around this particular miracle or excuse it away. One of the ways that some of the commentators, these are the more liberal commentaries that try to explain this away, is they say, well, this is just myth. That somebody is writing this story, yes, they are inspired by God to write it, but what they are really writing is a myth story, something on the order of Paul Bunyan. 
something that's meant to be able to, to teach us some kind of spiritual truth, even if this isn't really a historical record of what actually happened. He's trying to teach something to the Israelites about God. Now, this is actually an impossible suggestion for those who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. We cannot go that route. And here's the reason why. Because if, if this story here in the book of Jonah, if this is a myth, then what else in Scripture is a myth? Where, did, where are the other myths coming from? Is creation a myth? Is, is, that, is that real? What about the Israelites going through the Red Sea and God parting the waters and judging the Egyptians? Is that real? What about them crossing over the Jordan? What about David and Goliath? Or, or what about Jesus walking on the water or feeding many people, multitude of people, 5,000 people plus women and children with just a few loaves and fishes? Or even more important than that, what about the Savior getting up out of the grave? What about Jesus defeating death. If, if, if this is a myth, where do the myths stop in the Bible? Here, here's, here's what I would say to that. I don't need a myth. When, when I'm in the dark places of life, and when you're in the dark hours of your soul, you don't need a myth. You need a miracle working God. You need a God who is real, a God who is faithful, a God who sits on the throne of the universe that can come into those dark places of your life and not get you, give you some kind of feel goodies, but can rescue you from that situation and ultimately can rescue from our ultimate enemy, which is sin and death and the grave. We serve a God who is a miracle-working God. And I have zero problem at all with saying this right here is a miracle of an almighty God that you can know. That if you trust in Him, He will rescue you from your sins. He will rescue you from this world and deliver you safely into the kingdom coming. That is our miracle working God. I have no problem with the miracle. Others come up with all kinds of crazy ways to explain this away. The craziest one I read in the commentary was this, that Jonah fell overboard and he happened to, he was in the ocean and he happened to wash up on shore. And he washed up on shore right in front of a hotel. <laughs> And the name of the hotel was the Big Fish. <laughs> and he stayed at the Big Fish for three days and three nights <laughs> to recover. When I read that, I said, that's so dumb. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm just a simple backwoods Oklahoman. <laughs> I believe in a miracle-working God. And that's the God I preach. And that's the God of the Bible. And that's the God I trust in. Yeah, I have a degree in science. <laughs> and I believe in the God who does miracles. I have zero problem with that because that's the kind of God I need in order to deliver me and deliver you and to work in our church in this kind of a day. Oh, let this passage drive you to more trust in the miracle-working God. Now, others try to explain this passage away by saying, well, it is possible 
It's possible that somebody could be swallowed by a fish and be delivered. In fact, the, the word here in Hebrew in, in verse 17 and also in chapter 2, verse 10, is a word big fish. So it means big sea creature. It could be a whale. It could be a big fish. We don't really know. It's a generic kind of term in Hebrew. But there are stories, even one last month. Did anybody catch that in the news last month? <laughs> the guy that was, his, his name was actually Michael Packard. Michael Packard was is a Cape Cod lobster diver, and he was diving for lobsters off of the coast of Cape Cod, and he was swimming along, and in his own words, he says the following. He says, I just felt this truck hit me, and everything went dark last month. I just felt like I was underwater, and a truck hit me, and everything, what happened? I'm doing my thing. I'm looking for lobsters, and then boom, the lights go out. At first, he thought, I, I've seen this movie before. I've watched Jaws. I've been eaten by a shark. <laughs> but then he looks around, and he says, I don't see any teeth. Where am I? And it didn't take him long to figure out he had been swallowed by a whale. He was in the mouth of a whale. And at that moment, he wondered, I guess this is the way I'm going to go. And he began to think of his wife and his two children, his 12-year-old and his 16-year-old boy. And he was wondering, how, how long can I survive in here? Will anybody ever find out what happened to Michael Packard? But then all of a sudden, he felt the whale shaking and moving and boom, light! <laughs> And he had been spit up on the surface of the water. He looked over there and saw fins going back underneath the water. And he had lived to tell this story. He said the following after it was all over. I was just laying on the surface floating. I saw his tail go back down. And I thought, oh my word, I got out of that. I survived. Now there's several stories like this. But we know he had an oxygen tank. He survived. Most of the stories are kind of like that in a short-term, not three-day ordeals. Here's the deal. I don't have a problem believing in the miracle-working God. We don't have to find a story, although very interesting history, very fascinating story of a guy swallowed by a whale in the, mo or a whale in the modern day. But we don't need stories like that in order to prove the Bible is correct. The Bible is true. And this happened. This is history. Why is this so important? Because the God who can deliver Jonah three days and three nights in the belly of the whale has no problem with my deal. <laughs> has no problem delivering this guy. And the ultimate miracle is that he can deliver me from my sin. And that he can forgive a sinner such as me and such as you. That's why it matters, because we need the healer. We need the deliverer. We need the God who can forgive. We need the God who can raise the dead. And that's exactly Yahweh. That's the, exactly the God that we find here in this passage. Now, I want you to look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Verse 1 of chapter 2, very critical word there. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, Jonah prayed to the Lord God. I left out a word. What did I leave out? His, that's right. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And here's my challenge for some of you. Some of y'all know about the Lord God. So you've been in Sunday school, maybe you've been in church, maybe you're checking these things out, and there's a change that happens in your life when God becomes God out there and God becomes your God. 
And God becomes a, God moves from being something that you know about, something that you've heard about, something your grandparents believed in, something your parents believed in, some of your friends believed in, and it transfers from that to becoming your God, your Savior, your Lord, your Rescuer, your Deliverer, your one that you are placing everything, all of your trust in for time and for eternity. When that transfer happens in your life, the Bible calls that salvation. The Bible calls that an awakening. The Bible calls that regeneration. When Jesus becomes your God. And I want to ask you today, is He your Lord? Is He your miracle-working God? Is He your Savior? In fact, He will end this psalm, this song of Jonah, saying salvation belongs to the Lord. He is my Savior. Throughout this book, there are, throughout this psalm, there are over 20 personal pronouns. I, me, you, this is us. This is a personal relationship. That's the difference in Jonah from Jonah chapter 2 to Jonah chapter 1. Here in Jonah chapter 2, Jonah is now knows God personally. This is the miracle-working God that he has personally experienced. I want to challenge you. Move from that God of the God other people serve to the God that you serve, the God that you believe in, the God that you know, the God that knows you, and the God that you trust. We left last week not knowing what would happen to Jonah. Would he just die? And here at this moment, he still doesn't know for sure if he is going to be fish food or not. But he calls out to the Lord, not after he gets back on the land, but from the belly of the fish. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul going through trial as well says this. He says, we were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that even we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's the hope of Jonah. That's the God we worship. That's the God who can lead you to praise in dark places. Let me ask you some questions. Are you in a dark place right now? Is your home a dark place? Are you at the point in your family where you try to stay at work as late as possible so you can avoid that place? Or perhaps when you are there, you want to just sink into a social media rabbit hole, just endless scrolling, just anything to distract you from the situations at hand. How can you learn to praise in that kind of place? Maybe the darkness is caused by an illness. Maybe you're in a dark place of the soul because of an, an illness. Maybe it's yours. Maybe it's a family member's. Maybe it's somebody that you love, but you're, you're in the darkness. You're wondering, who can deliver me from this situation? Maybe your darkness is caused by something else. Maybe your darkness is caused by this epidemic that we have in our society right now of addiction to pain medications. Maybe your darkness is caused by a particular drug or a particular sin in your life. How can you be delivered from this darkness? Is there any hope for those who are struggling? Maybe it's you. Maybe it's somebody that you love. The good news of Jonah chapter 1 is patiently trust in the miracle-working God. In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of this place where you cannot save yourself, trust in God. Number two. Number two principle that we have from Jonah chapter two is this. Honestly cry out to God when it seems like the last light of hope is vanishing. Honestly cry out to God when it seems like the last light of hope is vanishing. 
The dark places when you're seeking down, down, down into the waters of, like Jonah was, the waters of judgment, or you, the waters of your trial, when you're sinking down, 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 down. It's not the place for trite prayers. It's not the place for kind of rote things. It's the place to cry out to God, God, save me. God, if, if, if you don't work, it's not going to happen. I'm going to die here. And that's the kind of place where Jonah was in this moment a place where he knew he absolutely could not save himself. And that's what we have in verses 2 through 6. Verses 2 through 6, we have the cry of the prophet Jonah as he goes down, down, down into the dark places. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 is kind of a summary of Jonah's psalm. Verse 2, he says, I called to the Lord in my distress. Not after my distress was over, but right in the middle of it, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Some of you, that's all you need to hear today. You call to the Lord, he'll answer you. I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. That's just the word for the grave in the Old Testament. These words, this word for distress is a dark place. It's, that word could be translated trouble, distress, calamity, oppression, difficulty, danger, or suffering. He's in that dark moment. He's in that moment of trial. He's in that moment of suffering, that moment of pain. And in the middle of that, that's when he calls out to the Lord, finding praise welling up from his heart in dark places. Psalm chapter 22, verse 11 says it like this. Don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. Have you ever felt like that? Jonah must have been like that. I can't swim. I'm sinking down. I'm in the middle of the Mediterranean. There's no way I can save myself. And he calls out to the only one who can save from the grave. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. Wait a minute. He says, you threw me into the depths. Who, who threw Jonah overboard? The sailors. <laughs> Chapter 1, it was the sailors. Jonah just said, you threw me overboard. <laughs> who was it? Was it the sailors or was it God who threw Jonah overboard? Let me ask the question this way. Is God sovereign or is man responsible? What's the answer to the question? Yes. <laughs> the answer to the question is yes. Who threw Jonah overboard? The sailors. Who threw Jonah overboard? God threw him overboard. Now, how does God's sovereignty and man's responsibility work together? I want to answer it like Spurgeon did. I don't ever try to reconcile close friends. <laughs> how do they work together? They're both true at the same time. And I've struggled with this, and I've wrestled with this, because there's passages that God is sovereign over all things. Man is responsible. How does that all work together? Here's, the Bible affirms both. The Bible says God is the sovereign God. You are responsible to believe and trust in him. How does that all work out? Here's where I've come to the place. When it comes to the things of God, I've become comfortable with a lot of mystery. And I don't feel like I have to explain every little thing. Because honestly, if I could explain every little detail of all of this, he wouldn't be God. <laughs> He'd be the figment of my own explanations. And when there's mystery to it, yes, we know for sure what he's revealed to us in his word. That he is sovereign. And we are responsible. We have wills. Those two things are true at the same time. I call it compatibilism if you want to. Fancy theological word to say God's sovereign 
Man's responsible. There's some mystery to it. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Trust in the Lord in the midst of your trial. God's sovereign in this case. God's sovereign in this. God sovereignly works through the agent of the sailors so that Jonah would be thrown into the waters of the sea so that Jonah would be brought back to God. God works in your circumstance, in your life, in your particular situation in such a way where he is working in the world so that through what happens in the world, you would be confronted with the God who loves you and the God who saves so that you can trust in him as Savior and Lord. He cries out to God and says, look, it was your billows. It's your sea, he says there in the end of verse 3. He sinks and he recognizes that this current suffering that he's enduring is the result of God's will drawing himself back to God. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says the following. He says, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. End quote. God speaks to us in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the trial, drawing us back, rousing us back into a relationship with him. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, he says, I have been banished from your sight. Have you ever thought, have you ever felt that way? Where you felt as far from God as you possibly could be and you can't seem a way, seem to find a way back. Is there any way back? In fact, the only way back from Jonah at this moment, he's not going to find his own way back. He can't doggy paddle back to Israel or to Nineveh. There's no, nothing for him to hang on out there in the middle of the Mediterranean. The only way he's going to be saved is if God saves him. Sounds like a similar predicament that we've been in, that you've been in. So he says there, it feels like I've been banished. There's no way back. And yet, in the middle of that, as he is sinking down, he says, one more time, one more time, I'm going to look to your holy temple. So he opens his eyes there in the, underneath the ocean, and he does, I don't know how he figures out which way it is, but he, maybe he looks up. He looks towards God's holy temple one more time, one more time. I just want to pray one more time. He took a chance as he was sinking down. In fact, that is the call to you when you are sinking underneath the waves that seem like they're going to crush you. At that moment, turn your eyes to the Lord. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glorious mercy and grace. Call upon the Lord in in the day of trouble and he will deliver you. Look at verses 5 and 6. In verse 5 he says, look at this imagery. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. So he's sinking down. Light is becoming scarcer and scarcer as he goes down down to the bottom of the ocean. He gets to the bottom. Seaweed starts wrapping around my head. Then in verse 6, I sank to the foundations of the mountain. He's looking around and he can see like mountains around him at the bottom of the ocean. And it feels like the earth's gates, I'm never going back there, the earth's gates have shut me in behind me forever and ever and ever. He accelerated down to the bottom of the ocean and it felt like he was was done and at that very moment he felt like all hope was lost look at the end of verse six end of verse six but you raised my life from the pit 
Lord, my God. That brings us to final point, number three. Third principle is this. Praise the Lord when he saves you and preserves you in dark places. Praise the Lord when he saves you and preserves you in dark places. There at the end of verse 6, we have a but God moment. I love these throughout Scripture here. It says, but God, you raised my life from the pit. Some of you, your life, you think right now, the only, that's a good word for it, the pit. God raised me up from that. And Jonah says, you raised my life from the pit. He had his own but God moment. We found these, find these throughout Scripture. But God remembered Noah. We see it in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his own love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a but God moment in history, in your life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we have another but God moment. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What we are longing for in those moments of trial, in those moments of temporary darkness, when we can't seem to find our way around, we are longing and praying for a but God moment to happen, to intervene in a time and a space and pull you up out of that water, out of that watery grave it seems that you're in. What we're praying for is a but God moment. The doctor said, but God. My child was running, but God. The rejection seemed endless, but God. The world seems to be going crazy, but God. My mind was so confused, but God. My, I was lost in rebellion, but God. I was almost lost in a deep depression, but God, but God. In the midst of that darkness, remember that God intervenes in the dark situations of our life. And when he intervenes, there's a but God moment where the miracle working, intervening God comes into your life and changes everything in a moment of time. That's how you can have hope in the midst of the darkness. That's how you can have hope in the midst of the trial because we serve a miracle working God that works in believers' lives with incredible but God moments. Pray and trust in the Lord that is intervening in our lives with those but God moments. Now, I don't think Jonah was delivered immediately. Yes, he didn't die, but he had to spend three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. I'm a fisherman, and I've caught a lot of fish, and I've seen the inside of a lot of fish. <laughs> that is not a place I'd want to hang out. <laughs> it's kind of smelly. It's kind of dark. I won't describe the texture to you. <laughs> Sometimes you're but God moment. God preserves you and has something to teach you. Jonah had a three-day theology seminar in the belly of a fish <laughs> before he got to become, as verse 10 says, fish vomit. <laughs> and sometimes when God delivers you, you might smell a little bit <laughs> from what you which went through. Because sometimes trials are dark and sometimes they're stinky. <laughs> but sometimes God uses that very thing to deliver you back to the center of his will, back to the center of where he would have you to be in that moment. Look at verse 7 through 9. Verse 7, he says, As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord's. 
And my prayer came up to you, to your holy temple. And then this, this thing in verse 8, what is he saying here? In verse 8, he says, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. Why that? Why? That seems weird. Why is he thinking about idols now in the belly of the fish? Here's the point that he's getting at. I think that's the main point of this whole passage. He's saying, look, Israel, if you trust in idols, they won't help you. Only Yahweh can help you. Only Jesus can help in the midst of the trial. Look, Ninevites, only Yahweh can deliver you. Only Jesus can deliver you from this trial. And not only them, but also us as well. Whatever you would look at in this world to sustain you and help you in the middle of the trial, it will not deliver you. The only one who can bring you salvation is Jesus Christ. The only one who can deliver you is God and Him alone. I love what Tim Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says the following, What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. That's what the Lord is driving at here in Jonah's heart. That's the problem with Israel. That's the problem with the Ninevites. It is still the problem with Jonah, and chapters 3 and 4 will reveal he still has idols in his heart. And that's the problem with us as well. And so oftentimes, in the middle of the darkness, we try to trust in these things that we place above God in the hierarchy of things if we really to examine our souls. And we think they will deliver and only God can deliver. In verse 9, we have the repentance of Jonah. He says, But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. Same words that's used of the sailors in chapter 1. God sovereignly so works that the sailors get saved, and so does Jonah. Jonah comes back to him. Jonah repents. I will fulfill what I vowed. And then he summarizes, Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish, and I loved this when I was 12, and I love it now too. And the fish vomited Jonah on a dry land. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I love the Bible, man. So real, so cool. Let me finish by asking this question. Where's Jesus in this passage? Where's Jesus? Where's he at? We know that ultimately Jonah 2 points to salvation in Jesus Christ. Here is the one in Jonah 2 who went down into the waters of judgment to the very gates of Sheol, and God preserved him and delivered him, and he came back out of, those wa of that watery grave, so to speak. And we know that Jesus points to this in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, and says, For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. God is working sovereignly in the story of Jonah, so much so that in the Old Testament, he is showing us this foreshadowing of what he would do in Christ to save us from our sins. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sins. Three days later, he rose again from the grave. If you'll trust in him, he will deliver you. He is the miracle-working God, the only one who can save. Salvation is of Christ and him 
alone. There's salvation found in no one else. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says it like this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. Let me encourage you as our response today, if you've never trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord, entrust in Him. Receive Christ as your Savior, as your salvation. Those of you who are walking through trial, be encouraged. How do you find praise in the midst of the trial? You rest, you trust in Him. You continue to have faith in the miracle-working God that one day a but-God moment is going to happen in your life. And you keep trusting, and you keep resting on Him. There's one more application in this passage I want to bring to your attention. You know, you could say the story of Jonah like this. Let's see if this sounds familiar to anything else in the Christian life. Jonah went down into the waters. He was lowered down into his watery grave, and God pursued him and preserved him and pulled him out of that watery grave. All of this points symbolically to Jesus Christ's death on the cross, burial, and resurrection. What does that sound like? It sounds a lot like baptism. Jonah points forward to Christ as this Old Testament echo of a New Testament reality that points back to the same reality, that points back to the very same truth. Christ alone saves I want to challenge you. If there's somebody here who has trusted in Jesus, but you've never taken that first step of obedience and followed him in baptism, I want to encourage you to do that. Here in two weeks on August 1st, during the Life Group Hour, I'm going to be teaching a class on baptism, one week on baptism. What is it? Why do we do it? Why should you do it? Why should you follow Jesus in that? If you've trusted in Christ but never followed him in baptism, mark that on your calendar as your next step. Let me encourage you to be in that class. Or if you just want to know more about baptism, Maybe you've already been baptized and want to know more about what it means. I want to encourage you to come to that class. However you need to respond to the passage today, you let the Lord speak to you as he's already been doing today, and you respond. We're here in a moment. We're going to take a moment of silence, and then we're going to stand. We're going to sing. That is your moment to respond. I'll be right here. I'd love to pray with you and talk with you about your next steps, but you come as we sing. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on what the Lord's shown us, and then we'll pray, we'll stand, and we'll sing. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the God who saves. That even in this passage, in this story, this moment where you are working in such a way to preserve Jonah in a way that points forward to something that would happen hundreds of years later, this reality that Christ would die for our sins, be buried, and rise again on the third day. Lord, we thank you for you working in that moment in Jonah's day, in Christ's day, and you're working in this day as well. Lord, to bring encouragement for those who need to be encouraged, to bring a challenge, a call to, to change their hearts and minds, to repent, to trust in God, not just to know some things about God, but that, Lord, you would become their God. Or perhaps other decisions that need to be made today. Lord, I pray that you would work in this place right now during this time of response. We thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand where you are and let's sing this song together.